What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 29 of Dart Against Humanity. So, back on October 23rd, a project that has been in the works for quite a long time that I contributed to for Complex finally went live. Uh, It was a piece called The Best Hip-Hop Producer Alive Every Year Since 1979. To give you an idea of what an undertaking this project was, there were 18 different contributors. While the project finally went live and was posted on October 23rd, 2018, I was actually contacted about it back in March. March 2018. The first episode of Dart Against Humanity, for full context, people, to give you an idea of the full scope of how long this project took and how how arduous it was to get to um, print and to make it to your eyes. Um, again, I said it went live October 23rd, 2018. I was first contacted in early March. The first episode of Dart Against Humanity... I posted April 22nd, 2018. This is season two. Uh, Season two will end on episode 35, and then I'll take another break, and I'll be in season three, which will begin either in late January or early February 2019. So to give you an idea of how long this project took, six weeks before I even recorded my first episode of Dart Against Humanity, we began working on the best produce the best hip hop producer alive every year since 1979 project for complex okay and i've been as of last week i've been doing this podcast for 6 months took a month off because it was the break between season 1 and season 2 so just keep that in mind Um, I've been getting a lot of good feedback for it, and then I've been getting some people saying they don't understand why certain people won for certain years. They don't understand the later years. uh, Some people, younger people, think that the the later years are great. They don't know anything about the early years. Older heads really like the early years, but they have questions about the 90s because they feel as though the winner could have gone to different people. First of all, let me tell you, I've been looking at this list forever. We've been going back and forth with this list forever. There were 18 contributors. Several editors, um, several people uh, chimed in on how they felt about who should have won what. With the more you know about hip hop production and the deeper your knowledge base goes with it, with this subject, the more you know, you could have given the award or the best producer award to anywhere between five to eight people. You could make a good, really good, solid case for in certain years. For me, it it wasn't so much about who won. For me, it was about the list of people that were the um, uh, you know, the runner-ups, so to speak, or the honorable mentions. Because to me, it's about the field. You could get, you can argue and and have differing opinions on who should have been the producer of that particular year. To me, it was about as long as we got. The core group or the field right for each year to pick that person, I was good. 
Now, another thing that you have to understand about this list is that there were so many different people up for each year. Sometimes it's like uh, I understood in the English language. And also another thing you need to understand is we only the, the list only listed three people for each honorable mention. For certain years, they could, there were five, there were six, there were eight. Some, they were up to ten people for honorable mentions if you go through everybody's list and you consider everyone. So three people were picked from everybody, all 18 people, or those are the people that tapped out like my lists. I pretty much stopped it like 1999, but I did put in names for later on, but they were all like independent underground producers because as far as I'm concerned, past a certain year, it could have gone to anybody. You know, I throw in a name like Bank or Jake One or or Mad Lib or Doom for certain years, LP for this year, you know, DJ Spinner, Sean J period. So I was just exile. I was just throwing in like names for certain stoop the enemy of mankind, what have you, for certain years. Kev Brown. Just so we had the right field. Again, certain years could have gone to anybody. My concentration was early on, 1979, 1989, and then like from there, it was like 1990, 1999. That's where I focused everything. So let's get started. I've heard a lot of input about this list. Um, so 1979, the award went to Sylvia, Sylvia Robinson. Um, the honorable mentions were Bobby Robinson, Rocky Ford, J.B. Boer, and, the, and um, Jamie Moore and the Fatback Band. The original list has... Because this is where I specialize. So Arthur Baker, of course. Terry Lewis, who produced The Younger Generations, We Rap More Mellow. Sylvia Robinson, who did Sugar Hill. My list included Ann and Paul Winley of Winley Records. And also the Harlem Underground Band, who was the band who actually played on their records. So that's who my field was. Or that's what the original field was. The honorable mentions is what ended up after everybody else's contributions. 1980, Rocky Ford and J.B. Moore, right? They produced for Curtis Blow. They're also like, they used to be journalists. Honorable mentions is Ann and Paul Winley of the Harlem Underground Band. Of course, that was my influence. Bobby Robinson and Pumpkin. Uh, anybody who knows anything about that year will all agree with that. 80, 1981, the year I wrote, um, the award went to Pumpkin and Pumpkin and Friends. And a lot of reason why this Pumpkin and Pumpkin and Friends went is because Bobby Robinson would have got it for um, other people, but I knew for a fact that Pumpkin was actually the producer of a lot of records that he didn't necessarily get credit for, and then Pumpkin and Friends actually is Pumpkin and the people he directed in the studio, or he directed when, when the re records were being made, or he was the guy behind the um, instrumentation, or made it what it was. So, that's from knowledge. That's my knowledge base that ended up giving it to the person that deserved it. And then honorable mentions were Jigs Chase of Jigsaw Productions, Johnson Crew, and Arthur Baker. Um, if we go deeper into that year, those are the guys. So that year is pretty much nailed down just the way it should have gone. Um, 1982, it was again Jigs Chase, Pumpkin and Friends, Johnson Crew. Those were the main people uh, that everybody looks at, Arthur Baker got it that year because he produced Planet Rock. 
So we keep going ahead. We have 1983, Larry Smith. Don't The person who should have got it definitely is Larry Smith. I wrote this one, too. Um, the honorable mentions went to Jean-Michel Basquiat and Al Diaz, who produced Beat Bop. Curtis Blow, who actually was a producer a lot of people seem to forget about. He did a lot of stuff with the Fat Boys, too. You know, he did a lot of work with with other people. He, he just... he. He actually worked a lot with um. He actually worked a lot with uh with Larry, so you know like he did he did tracks he produced tracks with Larry. So a lot of people didn't know that Arthur Baker was also honorable mention. Um, 1984, the award again goes to Larry Smith. When you look at 83, like the people there around, you know, Pumpkin was still producing. Aaron Fuchs is his first this is his first year being looked at. Um. 84 came down to Pumpkin, you know, Curtis Blow, Aaron Fuchs, Marley Mole appears on the on field. I had full force on my list. So when we look at 84, it's Curtis Blow, Aaron Fuchs, and full force. Okay, this is, again, this is where, like, I, my specialty fell in. So 1985, Rick Rubin got it. Um, so the honorable mentions were Marley Mall, Curtis Mantronic, and full force. Again, if we go to my list, it's Marley Mall. Full Force, Davey DMX, Howie T, those are my extra people. So other people had extra people, but again, we stopped at three for honorable mentions. We come to 86, 86 the first year of the golden era. Now, Rick Rubin ends up winning it, and rightly so, he should have won it. License to Ill, Raising Hell are two of the biggest albums that kicked off the golden era i also include ll cool j's radio because while it came out late 85 the push in 86 happened it entered the pop charts the um the pop charts as in like the billboard 200 charts and the black music charts to start shooting up those charts in early 86 so i often attribute it to the partly to the explosion of the first golden era Although most people don't, but I I, I do. I, you can't. It sold at the same time these albums were selling. So while Rick Rubin gets 1986, the honorable mentions go to Teddy Riley, Molly Mall, Daddy O, DBC of Stetsasonic. Um, I have Molly Mall, Daddy O, and DBC of Stetsasonic, Howie T, Teddy Riley, DJ Eddie F, and Curtis Mantronic for 86. 87, I was in for. Uh, Howie T, Hitman Howie T, Teddy Riley, Paul C, DJ Mark the 45 King, Dr. Dre, Herbie Lovebug, DJ Eddie F for the Untouchables, DJ Pooh, and Louie Lou. Now, DJ Pooh, I believe, also was part of the L.A. Posse, so I think L.A. Posse also had something to do with, like, who I had. 1987 went to said G. And the honorable mentions were Molly Maul, Herbie Lovebug, and DJ Eddie F. Now, you heard the entire list of people that I had in the field and other people had contri- had contributors. If we listed all of the honorable mentions, I'm not 100% sure people would have felt, would have been like, hey, okay, I understand the field better. But then again, nobody was complaining about said G winning in 87. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to provide background for people. There are years that people see the, see the who won and they automatically are like, oh, I'm good with that. Then they see the honorable missions like, oh, that makes sense. It doesn't snap into people's minds that something's wrong 
or there's something to be upset about until they see a name they don't expect to see. And then they immediately jump to an honorable mentions to see if that person's at least honorable mention. And then they don't understand how big or how wide the field is. So this is why I'm establishing um this background. So 1988. I my picks for 1988 were the field. DJ Mark the 45 King, Daddy O, DBC, Prince Paul of Stetsasonic, Grand Pooba, EPMD, Herbie Lovebug, Paul C, Dr. Dre, Tony D, DJ Pooh slash LA Posse, Curtis Mantronic, and the King of Chill. That's my selection for the field. Mind you, there are 18 contributors. Different people contributed more. Some people wrote blurbs. Some people did full, you know, voting and, and adding on, like, who should be in the field. That's my thing for the field for 88. So who wins for 88? Marley Maul. He's the guy who put out In Control. He produced Going Off, Long Live Decane, Born to Be Wild by Shan. And he also produced a single Poison on Prism by Cool G Rap and DJ Polo. He definitely, I feel as though he should, he could have won. But more, some people could have said the Bomb Squad could have got it for um working on, um for working with uh, the uh, Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold This Back. There are a lot of people who you could have said could have won 88. And when you look at the honorable mentions, we have DJ Mark, the 45 King, the Bomb Squad, and Paul C. Now, people look at that year, and they're not going to trip. They're going to say, oh, yeah, that's tight. That's good. 1989, the award goes to Prince Paul for Three Feet High and Rising. The honorable mentions are the Dust Brothers, Howie T, and DJ Mark, the 45 King. My full field was Howie T, DJ Mark, the 45 King, DJ Eddie F, Sam Sever, Above the Law, DJ Pooh slash LA Posse, uh, DJ Premier, and Louis Louis Vega. Those were my contributions based on who everybody else already knew they were going to pick and who the field already was. All right? That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight people that I had as honorable mentions, and other people had their honorable mentions. You only see three listed. I totally didn't list the Dust Brothers. Not that I didn't think that they were deserving of being in the field. It's just that I didn't list them. And and on and if I think about back on it, I kind of knew some. I think I saw the name Dust Brothers already brought up by someone else, so I knew I didn't have to bring them up. I know it wasn't because I was just like they didn't. They weren't deserving. 1990 goes to the Bomb Squad. Fear of a Black Planet, America's Most Wanted by Cube. The honorable mentions you see is Sir Jinx, Tony D, and Large Professor. I believe all three of them were on my list for 1990, along with um, Dante Ross, Stimulated Dummies, SD50s, um, Sam Sever, Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest, EPMD, Shock G of Digital Underground, DJ Premier, and Above the Law. That's my full field for 1990. And other people had contributions, so if there's a name you, you expected me to say, I didn't because I saw the name already on the list from somebody else. Again, this is a shared thing that we're doing. Started in March, went up in October. And 1991 goes to DJ Quick. This is the first year I think people were really like, um, what? But you look at the credentials. Quick is the name. Bitch better have my money. AMG, scanless by high C, second to none, second to none. That's a lot of work. That's a damn good year. If you remember 1991. There are a lot of people that weren't Quick fans and didn't know what Quick did until after the fact. I was paying attention. So honorable mentions, KG, Naughty by Nature, who I could have got, if they gave it to KG, I would have been cool. Above the Law, Cold 187 on my Aunt Banks. 
I would have leaned towards KG. As far as I'm concerned, I thought that 1991 was the year KG sound kind of, you know, crept up. But you have a Q-tip. My field was also Q-tip, DJ Premier, Sir Jinx, Shock G. And this is from me looking at everybody else's people that they put in. I think the earliest year you could have put Pete Rock in was 1991. But I feel like 1992 was really the year where... You had to put in Pete Rock. So 1992, we get Diamond D, DJ Premier for me. Showbiz, DJ Pool by himself. Solid Scheme, Dos Effects, Pete Rock. Beastie Boys, Sir Jinx, T-Ray, and Jay Swift. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. For me. So the field, I think, the honorable mention field was between 15 and 16, if you looked at everybody's suggestions. For 1992, what do we get for 1992? You get three. So Dr. Dre, who I didn't have to write in because I knew because I knew that, that name was going to come up anyway, and I, I'm pretty sure I saw it. Um, and honorable mentions went to Muggs, DJ Muggs, Pete Rock, Diamond D. DJ Muggs. Um, the first year he could have been mentioned was 1991 because that's the year that, um, that's the year that, uh, Cypress Hill's first album came out. But DJ Muggs sound really blew up in 1992 and I saw Muggs on the list, so I didn't need to add his name. Pete Rock's name was already on the list, so I need to add his name. Diamond D I put in. Diamond D's name showed up for the other people. 1993. Again, 1992 to 1999, I think, are the hardest years to do this. Because there are straight years where it's just like Pete Rock, Premier, and Diamond D, and Buck Wild, and Showbiz, and Lord Finesse, and all these people, and all these other people from the West Coast could have been on the list for every year. Every year. So this is where it gets weird. 1993, I believe my contributions after looking at everybody else's stuff was Eric Sermon, Diamond D, Showbiz, DJ Muggs, Chai Skills, The Beat Nuts, E. Swift, The Alcoholics, Mad Lib, um, The Beat Miners, Seji, Hieroglyphics. And I listed all the hieroglyphics. Souls of Mischief, Dell, Casual, A+, J-Biz, Snoop, blah, 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 blah. So... Mine came up to what? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. If I include all the hieroglyphics. So I was between 12 and 16 myself. 18 contributors for 1993. Who wins 1993? RZA. I didn't write RZA. RZA was already there. Not that I didn't think RZA was deserving. Again, this is a shared list and this is everybody's contributions. We knew RZA was going to get uh, the aunt, the thing because that's the year Enter the 36 Chambers comes out. You know RZA's name is going to be on the list. Um, Q-Tip, A Tribe Called Quest, DJ Premier, Dr. Dre, The Honorable Mentions. You heard all the people I mentioned. They were on the list of honorable mentions when you look at the field for people to select from. Something I really need to establish. 1984 goes to Easy Mo B. This is a tough year. 
Oh, they're all tough. So the honorable mentions are Warren G, Mike Dean, Organized Noise. What was my list for 1994? Um, I believe it was Diamond D, all the other guys, uh, Pete, uh, Premier, uh, Beastie Boys, Prince Paul, Buckwild, T-Ray. That's what I had because everybody else was covered. You only saw three people listed. There were upwards of 10 of 10, 12 people in the field. 1995, I believe my the, my contributions to who should be added to it, because again, other people already had their input. Grand Neggers, Grand Wizards, The Roots, DJ Muggs, The Beat Miners, JD, 1995, Eric Sermon, Easy Moby. Other names would already put in. So you go to 95, you got RZA. RZA ends up winning. And you look at the honorable mentions. We got Havoc, Mob Deep, The Beat Miners, Easy Moby. There are so many people that could have been thrown in there. Um, Sean J. Period. Um, 1996. I'm rocking with the Fugees, the Umma, DJ Scratch, Ski, Havoc, the Grand Negas, Wizards, the Roots. Because the other names are already on the board. And Organized Noise ends up winning. And the honorable mentions you see are DJ Shadow, the Fugees, Jerry Wonder, Grand Negas, Wizards, the Roots. 1997. This is where things get murky. 1997 is the first year I go, like, I think I went underground because I already knew everybody else was going to cover everybody else. So honorable mentions were Trackmasters, Timberland, LP. LP was my push. Um, Who would I have 97? LP, DJ Spinner, DJ High Tech, DJ Shadow, and we could have just gone on. And right when we hit, like, 98, 99, that's when I'm just like, and eh, I already know that I'm not really needed because most of the people that contribute have already, you know, they they are they were alive and awake for this. So I'm not going to be adding any extra stuff. And besides, 98 was like a push year. I was just like, yeah, whatever. So I knew Beats by the Pound, KLC, Moby Dick, Manny Fresh, Dame Grease, Swiss Beats. 98, I knew that was going to happen. I think the only name I, I did, I barely even like contributed to 98. I didn't contribute to 99 at all. Uh, I think in 2000, I just wrote the name JD. And then I just focused on um, getting 1979 to 1990, right? Or 1989, right? And then I did my contributions for the 90s. Once we get to the end of the 90s and after past 97... I knew it was like I just tapped out and I was like, all right, I'm going to write my piece for 81 and 83. So I so 99 and on is pretty much the list of the other contributors really like took that over. Because, again, my list for who these people would have been would have been so super underground and my vote 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 pretty much wouldn't have really counted much. And it is what it is. But it's a list where you have a whole bunch of contributors and everything. And people, some people are up in arms about who won what year. Anybody could have won anything in those years because the field was that good. Let's just get that right. Let's just get, let's just get that straight. I like the way, I personally was fine with the way um, the list ended up turning out. Uh, I feel as though you could go several different right ways with a list like this. And you can focus it. Um, you can do a laser beam focus on certain errors and certain producers and certain sonics and what have you. But 
that's the way the list uh, panned out. It was crazy because anybody who knows my career knows that I've had serious back and forths with uh, Complex over their lists and the field that they picked and certain people that they left out of the of the um of the process and making them. So I was a part of one of these lists and again I saw how much work it took, how much editing it took, how much fine tuning, uh, how much back and forth it took, how many emails it was, how many um, shared Google <laughs> Google documents it was. Uh, it was quite the undertaking, and um, I'm good with my contributions and the final results from what I did. I'd like to do something else like that in another capacity and another, you know, subject matter going forward. And uh, there are a lot of people that were just surprised and taken aback by me being involved. But it's one of the things where I stuck to my guns and my principles about my integrity and how I like to see things happen. And I was ultimately respected for it. There are a lot of people that work at Complex and write for Complex who have known me and respect what I do for the past decade plus because I'm a constant. I don't flip-flop. I am who I say I am and I do what I say I'll do. And ultimately, I have the knowledge base, I have the integrity, and I have the goods, and I can execute a certain job. So if if a assignment or something like that's going to come up, there's a field of people, it's a small field of people you're going to go to to get a certain, to, to contribute. I'm in that field. And that's why it happened. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad it happened. Hopefully more happens in the future. Now, something I didn't uh, speak on, and this, the reason I didn't speak on it because it was, it was a long, arduous process and I wanted it to happen first before I spoke on it. Um, but I'm glad it's up. Finally, um, something I didn't speak about when I could have was the Red Sox making it to the World Series. But I just didn't want to do another Red Sox post because I, I, I don't know how many people who listen to the podcast uh, actually care. But also, it's something I care about, so I'm going to talk about it because I love the Red Sox. So they made it to the World Series. They, uh, of course, buzzsawed through the Yankees. And surprisingly to a lot of people, they completely mowed down the Houston Astros, who a lot of people thought were a more complete and better team. But, you know, four to one. Won a bunch of games at home. Won a bunch of games on the road. Whereas before people looked at the Red Sox and they said, we don't like their bullpen. The bullpen's been lights out and Alex Cora has been a baseball genius. He's minimized the issues with the bullpen. He's added some extra pieces. He's had starters come in and fill in roles. He's figured out ways to get to Kimbrell. He stuck with Kimbrell even when Kimbrell um, really struggled. But he never like he bent, but he never broke. And by sticking with Kimbrel and proving to Kimbrel, look, I have all the faith in the world in you that you'll get the job done and putting in people in positions 
to pinch hit and just telling them, I believe in what you can do, putting people in positions like Joe Kelly to uh, to go into roles where he uh, is doing relief or Brian Brazier or um, whomever he throws in at a certain role, whether it's the pinch hit, whether it's the catch, whether it's a defensive assignment. Putting in, keeping Devers in, and Devers has been coming up good, uh, coming up on defense too. Uh, when he throws in somebody to pinch hit, they they either hit the ball, get home runs. They're getting two out hits. They're they're getting on with two strikes in the count. It's just everything's coming up roses right now for the Red Sox, and they're up two nothing uh, after winning two games in Fenway Park. I didn't get tickets to the games because they're crazy expensive, but I live like 15 minutes away so when the game's about to end i just walk down to fenway park and when the last outs at last out happens i'm in fenway right there with the people you know after the wins game three happens tonight i hope that the red sox close them out as soon as possible i think it's hilarious that there are a lot of people who feel like the Dodgers going to LA, they're going to put in their full lineup. They're going to play in LA in the sunshine. They're going to be back in their home park. They're going to play NL rules. So the pitchers are going to hit. And I'm like, do you guys understand that Alex Cora and the Red Sox have waited for this all year long? The reason Porcello was pitching game three is because not only is Porcello made for the NL game, not only is he tailor-made for this situation, but the man can rake. And then on top of that, you think you're not going to see Mookie and JD in the lineup? You think you're not going to see Brock Holt now? Like, the Red Sox can do so many things with their lineup. And the first two games in Boston were super cold. You think that the Red Sox are going to be hurt by the sun or hampered by playing in excellent weather in Dodger Stadium? No, absolutely not. The Red Sox were at their best during the summer. They were at their hottest during the summer. So pretty much what you're doing is you're putting them right back in August mode. Thanks. Like, it cracks me up. But I really hope... It looks like on the field that the Red Sox are just getting lucky and doing well. And everything's coming to roses for them. Hopefully in LA, what happens is they just show everybody that they're actually the better team. The more complete team. The more dominant team. And they play like it in LA. They got three games in LA. Hopefully they only need two. Hopefully they only need two. I don't like when people come out and just make bold statements and speak for other people. I know what I it looks like can happen, and I know what I want to happen. Let's talk about what happens. You know, uh, I'm too old to be making like bold as statements like a stand or something like that. I've seen a lot of things happen in my life. I know I'm hopeful about certain things. I know how things look like they can go. I'm going to be like everybody else and watch the games. 
You play the games for a reason. Analysis, if you want me to be to, to analyze something and give my take on who does what, you better pay me. I'm not a sports analyst. If I was a sports analyst and I was on TV and or writing a column or something like that, I'd absolutely give you my take on who was going to win and what the score might be and how things are going to look. I'm not doing that. I know what I'd like to see again. Hopefully, the Red Sox win in four or five and come back home to cold-ass Boston with another championship. We'll see what happens. Uh... But it was great to see David Price get the monkey off his back and win game five, pitching an excellent game versus Houston, and then come back in game two and pitch an excellent game and getting the win versus the Dodgers in the World Series. That's going to change everything for David Price and his legacy and how people feel about him in the city. Because when you come up big in this town, there's no better place to win. There just isn't. You want to win, you want to win in Boston. And also, Sandy Leone had two hits. That just, that just, and the bullpen's doing well. That just, it's insane. Now, the Boston Celtics are not playing Celtics basketball. They're just not. Everything looks stifled. Everything looks like they're pulling teeth. They're not playing fluid basketball. They're not sharing the ball. They're not moving. They're not playing the same intense team defense they they were before. A lot of people saying it's because the the NBA rule changes to um, improve scoring are making it hard for the the Celtics to actually play team defense like they did before. I just think they're just not playing basketball like they did last year. And some people are blaming it on rotations. I don't think it has to do with rotations. If the Celtics play basketball the way they're capable of playing basketball, it doesn't matter who's on the court, they're going to play. And they're going to play together. I feel like there's a lot of... um, They're treating basketball... Basketball should be like jazz. Improvisational. Free. But they're treating it like jazz in the sense that here's your solo, here's my solo, here's my solo, here's your solo, let's play this part together. And it doesn't seem like it's flowing. It seems like it's stunted. I don't like that. I like to see basketball where we get to the point where we're playing games where sometimes the ball doesn't touch the ground. Sometimes there's no dribbling. It's just running, throwing the ball ahead, throwing the ball to the next person, alley-oop to the next person, dunk. That's when you know everybody's on the same page and they're in sync. Everybody's not worried about who gets the shot. Or you want to feed the hot hand. Or let's just go play ball. If you're in position, you get the ball. But the offense has to go through somebody. The offense isn't going through um, Al Horford enough. Al Horford and um, Kyrie Irving used to play the two-man game to a T. And then it would be Al Horford and uh, Marcus Smart. It just seems like it's like, all right, I have the ball now. I have the ball. You get the ball. You get the ball. All right, we can't score. Let's give the ball to um Jay. Let's give the ball to other Jay. Jalen Brown is struggling right now. And I really wanted Jalen Brown to and Jalen and Jay and Jason um Tatum to both be guys 
going to the rim, destroying things. Uh, one wrecks, the other destroys. I wanted Jalen Brown this season to be the Jalen Brown that played in the um, in the Rising Stars game last year at All-Star Weekend. I want to see that Jalen Brown. I want to see the Jalen Brown from the playoffs play right now while we're trying to get Gordon Hayward to come around. And Gordon Hayward, he's, he's getting there. He hasn't found his rhythm. He's rebounding really well. He's actually um, putting forth some effort on defense. So I'll take that. Uh, right now they're 3-2. and two. They had a comeback, come from behind win last night uh, versus a horrible OKC team. OKC just looks like they don't know what they're doing. They need to blow that up. Seriously. I'm not I'm not into it. Now, something else I want to talk about. Uh there was a discussion going on uh not too long ago about uh black music and why it's not um okay. The main discussion was and I think that when people discuss this, they don't exactly know what they're talking about, so they go to the wrong thing. Uh Rory, who's from the Joe Budden podcast, was talking about how Hip-hop is the only genre that doesn't respect, like, longevity, which is bullshit. Hip-hop culture relies on longevity because somebody has to teach somebody else and pass down traditions and stuff like that. So hip-hop very much respects longevity. There's a lot of people in hip-hop culture who've been around for a long time. And we look up to them and we look to them for guidance. You know, and like it's dope to be around in hip hop for a long time. Hip hop. Now, if you're talking about the mainstream music industry, that's when people kind of frown on you being around for a long time. And his example was that in rock, um, you could be this year's old. That's not fair to compare rap to rock. Rap became a recorded art form starting in 1979. Rock, as in rock and roll, has been around since the 50s. And rock, even though it was a disputed art and people fought against it, and they called it jungle music and rhythm and black, and then rock was was like slang for rap, and basically rock was, they had to change the face of rock because rock was too black for them. And then suddenly... It became white over time. It became white over time. This is what people don't forget. The RIAA's default setting is rock. But something had to happen for that to happen first. There's classic rock radio. Everything is set up for rock. There are films made. Their entire soundtrack is classic rock. In order to cross over or get seen as something that's timeless or considered high art if you're black music by the white consumer or the or or the or the establishment, what happens is you automatically, for some odd reason, give up a lot of your black fan base or your fandom. This happened with jazz. Jazz was regarded as high art. It was regarded as as uh, intellectual music. Uh, the scholars loved it. The learned people loved it. 
it became like any other thing that we look at like um classical music or ballet or something like the opera shit like that and when that happens with the black fan base a lot of times they jump to something else like they stole rock from black folks black folks left rock they let rock go because they had other things that when you have something else you can move to you have no problem abandoning something else like there are animals that lose that shell and they go to another shell they move that shell go to another shell they shed that skin and move on to another form this has been what black music has done forever jazz okay y'all like jazz we're gonna jump over to this now we're gonna do this we're gonna do this free form shit we're gonna do this this hard bop we're gonna do this now we're gonna do fusion now we're gonna do this oh y'all like jazz all right so if you want to still do jazz it's cool but we're gonna be over here fucking with this whatever this new form of music is or this new style is or this new genre is this happened with um a lot of people look at what happened with um Motown and the Motown sound when they begin to sweeten their sound and add strings and and all of a sudden it was more symphonic and and it was more um they they dressed up uh things like uh Martha and the Vandellas and the Supremes and they made them more viable to white audiences so what happens is you have movies like The Big Chill and there's groups of white folks who love Motown. Motown's their soundtrack of them growing up now. So what happens is black folks, they move on to something more heavy. They fucking with the funk now. This is something that has happened again and again and again and again. So when you look at uh, black people, uh, hip hop and rap doesn't uh, value longevity. No, what it is is that black music has always evolved in generations and micro generations. And now it's in this real time social media era, it's gone down to Urban music changes in phases sometimes every, on average, every three to five years. There's a new sound. There's a new wave. There's a new sea change. This is not something new. Do you know how long doo-wop was hot? The era of the bird groups? And then when it just went to straight R&B and soul? Do you know how long that ever was? Do you know what year that was or what year span that was? This is not a new phenomenon for black music. This is ongoing. That's why the golden eras lasted as long as they did. The first golden era was 86 to 89. Then there was an intermediate period between 1990 and 1991. Then 1992, 1996 is another golden era. Then 1997 starts another era. And then there are divergent errors, and I've explained that. 1997 to 2002 is what we call the backpacker underground era, but also it's the jiggy era on the mainstream side. And then in 2003, there's a new sound. When we get 50 Cent, G-Unit, and all these other cats. This is how it's always been. So to say something like, uh, rap doesn't acknowledge longevity. No, music in general, and especially black music, has always had an issue with somebody staying around. People that stay around for a, a, a good amount of time 
are what we like to call um, anomalies. Drake is an anomaly. Okay? He's been hot since, what, 2008 and it's going into 2019? When Jay-Z said, I've been hot for however many summers, he was an anomaly. When Prince was around for as long as he was and he was still a viable artist, he was an anomaly. Re- reinventing himself. Uh, same thing with Madonna. Madonna had been hot for so long. It was like, how do you stay on top? When Janet Jackson kept finding new new ways, she was an anomaly. Because other artists that were around, they were her contemporaries, had already, you know, fallen off. And now they're doing different types of tours and stuff like that. Jody Watley couldn't last as anywhere near as long as um, Janet could. Neither could... um. Uh, Paula Abdul, or you know, at, at one point, it was just her and Madonna, you know, just trying to outlast each other. You, when you look at how long Missy Elliott ran, how long her run was, Wu Tang's run was technically from 1993 to 1998 or 92 to 97, depending on how you look at it, and then like. All of a sudden, they weren't on the charts in 98. They kind of fell off the charts again in 98. And then they had to, like, deal with that entire wave. So, again, that's why when it came to 1998, 1999, the contribution, I was just like, eh, it could go either way. It could go either way. Because I already knew what happened during those years. Again, when black music, for some odd reason... Is considered high art and and accepted again uh, uh, with a wide swath of people. Usually, something happens where it gets abandoned or people go into a subgenre. When rap blew up in like 1990, that didn't happen, and it's largely because rap was the genre that people jumped to. And the summer of 1988 again. Uh, R&B changed its sound and its default setting switched to New Jack Swing, which was heavily rap influenced. Between 1988 and like 1991, R&B became more and more dependent on and sounded like and influenced by rap. By the time we get to that year, 1992, when Mary J. Blige's What's the 411 drops, you know, it's like the last year for if you were an old, an older, contemporary, actual, dyed-in-the-wool R&B artist to actually make hits on the R&B charts. Peebo Bryson was not popping in the same year that SWV and TLC was. You know what I'm saying? Like, Melissa Morgan... Was out. Melba Moore was not going to be hot no more. Gladys Knight was like, um, what am I doing here? Freddie Jackson just like, why? Why am I here? I need to be on a boat. I need to be on a cruise ship. So that's essentially what happened. You know. It got harder and harder for the, you know, Tony Terry's of the world, the Chucky Bookers of the world. You know, now you got to be Keith Washington, you know, 
Christopher Williams. And even then, you look at those guys, you know, they weren't around for a while. Rachel Farrell, BET loves her, but, you know, she's not going to be, you know, up here with Mary J. Blige competing on the charts. She's going to be an adult contemporary crowd. And that's something that happened. I saw it happen. I lived it. So again, it bothers me when people make these broad statements and they don't really, they're not based in fact and they don't do real like, they don't walk walk people through what they're talking about. They just make this statement and they just stick it out there. And I'm like, uh, did you actually walk through this or like think this through all the way? That's not exactly true. But yeah, there is something about black music is a special case. And also we have to remember that black music did not have the same um, protections that rock did. There's Rock and Roll High School, the movie, you know. What's the rap equivalent of that? Think about movies like um, Actually I did an entire um, piece on, on Medium About why doesn't hip hop have these two particular films Almost Famous Like rap doesn't have an Almost Famous The closest thing we have is Brown Sugar And do you really believe that the characters in Brown Sugar actually loved rap the same way that the characters in Almost Famous loved rock? I don't. Why don't we have that? You know, that's always been something that bothered the hell out of me. I'm 43 years old and it still bothers me that we don't have that type of thing it's like how long do we have to wait to get the same kind of respect or the same kind of treatment as the other side it's wildly frustrating So what I'm doing right now is actually, fuck it, I'm just stalling. I'm stalling because I'm going through my stories on Medium and I'm trying to figure out the name of the piece that I actually wrote. And I'm scrolling right now. I figured, why am I going to sit here and lie? Because it's not like you're not going to hear my computer, you're not going to hear my laptop buzzing. I'm talking into my fucking phone, for God's sake. So the piece was called, um, wow. This is that long ago? The first piece was called... Back in May 4th, 2014, why doesn't hip-hop have a high fidelity or almost famous yet? May 4th, 2014, to give you an idea of how long I've been doing this. And yes, this is my Medium page. This is where uh, uh, journalism, music journalism goes to die. Pieces that nobody's going to pay me for. And then on um, February 24th, 2016, my re-up to the, art, to the piece... Um, how close are we to hip-hop's high fidelity and almost famous finally being made? Well, 
it's almost 2019, and let me tell you, they ain't been made yet. And they probably won't be made until I make them. Somebody pay me. Did I ever do another? Oh, yeah, my takedown of get the get down in 2016. Yeah, y'all love that. I mean, yeah, that, that did well. That did well for me. Uh-huh, yeah. That was great. Mm-hmm. Woo! Fun times, fun times. So, yeah. Oh, and another piece I recently wrote, and I don't know why it looks this way. I wrote a piece, um, Amy Winehouse's Frank, a 15th anniversary retrospective. For some odd reason, it says 20th. When you click on the piece, it says 15th. Uh, I wrote a piece about Amy Winehouse's debut, Frank. Classic debut album. 15 years it was released in the UK. Um, It has yet to go gold in North America. North America includes the um, United States and Canada. Yet to go gold. But Back to Black has done fairly well. By fairly well, I mean extremely well. Well Well-renowned, album everybody loves. Frank, however, her debut, stateside, not so much. I tell the entire story about the first time I heard the album almost when it, almost right after it came out from somebody from the UK who was visiting a friend in um, America back when I was working my old job. I told the story that I first heard this album right after the, um, the Red Sox got thrashed by the Yankees in the 2003 ALCS. I had this album for years. Years. I had the album for so long that I had it on my um, laptop. I had it on the desktop. I, for Christmas 2015? I mean, not 2015. Christmas 2005, I believe, I got my first iPod. I think I got an iPod Nano. It, It was laser printed for my brother, a black iPod Nano. And one of the first things I put on that iPod Nano, yeah, was um, Christmas 2005, was Frank by Amy Winehouse. So I told that entire story, and I wrote that on Medium. It hasn't gotten a lot of eyes. Uh, Not a lot of people, I guess, were super interested in it. It's one of the reasons why it was so hard for me to sell five years ago when I was the only American journalist to write about it, the 10th anniversary. Um, After she's passed away and the documentary Amy came out, I just figured it's a better time to write this. Again, I really couldn't find anybody to really bite on it or pay me to write it. So, again, it goes where journalism goes to die. Medium. If there's any way for somebody to get me paid for the shit I wrote on Medium, do it. Just do it. Just say Dart Adams, Dart underscore Adams, Medium. Scroll through that and just pay him for the shit he wrote. Because I, I wrote so much shit on there, so much fire on there. Maybe one day I'll find a way to make that work. Um, I'm sick of talking. <laughs>